So we're reading Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Shirley, thank you very much for reading for us. Good evening, everyone. Can we pray for a moment? These are Jesus' words. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Lord Jesus, in that film and, in, and through your word, we've just glimpsed how you delivered this very troubled man from darkness to light. Help us now, please, to see your greater plan to end darkness in every part of the world. And we ask this for your great name's sake. Amen. Well, COVID being what it is, I haven't preached uh, for uh, a while, but I'm really pleased to be asked and delighted to uh, discuss with you this reading from Luke, Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, if you could keep your Bible open if you have it in front of you. I say delighted, actually, when Steve asked me to uh, read this passage and sent me the, the text, I thought I'd drawn a short straw, Goody, goodbye, easy sermon, cross demons and flying pigs, actually strain the brain a bit, don't they? What about you? I don't know. Anyway, maybe we should start there. Jesus, pigs and demons. Is this fact or fiction? 
So let's check out how we feel about demons. What do demons look like? How creepy are they? Demons have star billing in literally hundreds of scary movies. Uh, the massive poltergeist with a crocodile-sized jaw, uh, all the better to swallow you by. Or the famous green slime menace, a single touch, poof, it's adios for you. Well, supernatural horror may have affected the way that we see and think of demons and maybe have trivialized them for us as well. But for most of us, perhaps our skepticism isn't just cultural, it's intellectual. It's to do with our scientific worldview. The natural has no room for the supernatural, or so we say. We tell ourselves there are natural explanations for most things. Something goes bump in the night, but it's more likely to be the central heating than a demon. So let's try another tack. Is there any actual evidence for such supernatural claims? Well, YouTube, go to for the gullible, claims loads of evidence. I checked out demons caught on camera and the scariest things captured in morgues and hospitals. Don't try this at home. But uh, factual evidence, yes, when I was thinking about Sue Gray of the Partygate Report, I promise I won't go there, except to say that Sue Gray was chosen because of her track record, diligent research, eyewitness interviews, and balanced conclusions. Maybe that rings some bells for you, does it? With Luke? Because diligent research, eyewitness interviews, and balanced conclusions are Luke's terms of reference too, aren't they? Luke says so right at the beginning of his gospel in, in, in chapter one, verse three, and also at the beginning of Acts, the second volume. Notice how he calls his evidence an orderly account. This is Luke 1, 3. An orderly account, it's a very important word, a significant word, actually. In Greek, it's kathexes. Uh, above all, that word means precision, not just orderly, not just in a, in a neat order, but precision, precise, a precision account that's been checked and cross-checked, not stories or superstition. Well, that evidence actually challenges my worldview. For however skeptical that I may feel about demons, and I do a bit, I have to accept that Luke presents his evidence as fact, not fiction. And above all, he has interviewed first-hand witnesses. Now, there's one more thing I want us to remember about Luke. He's not just highly educated, trained in the scientific method, an expert in the techniques of accurate research. In fact, a brilliant historian and recognized as such. Luke is also a theologian. Now, make a note of that mentally, and we'll come back to it. Luke is also a theologian. So here we are in Luke chapter 8. Carefully researched, as we'll see, an eyewitness account. Luke 8, verse 26. Jesus and the disciples crossed the lake from Galilee. Last week, uh, with uh, our help, uh, we saw the, the journey begin back in verse 21 with a violent storm, and it's the same journey. And gobsmacked firsthand, as he literally saves them from the waves, what have the disciples witnessed? Jesus' authority over the dangerous natural world. Jesus' authority over the dangerous natural world. Who is this, they say, that even the wind and the waves obey him? The disciples don't know yet, but they are about to witness Jesus' authority over the even darker supernatural world. Now, one other reminder about this chapter as a whole, because it just sort of sets it in, in context, is chapter eight, verse one. I wonder if you remember when you've read this uh, chapter, how Luke describes Jesus' message. It's very carefully worded. Chapter eight, verse one, he calls it the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God. And we should pause and take that in. 
For what follows in this chapter is intended to illustrate the extraordinary reach of this kingdom to the natural and supernatural worlds and right into the darkness. So do you see how Luke brings history and theology together? It is phenomenally good news. It spells out visually that the kingdom of God touches the whole of life, not just some narrow, narrow spiritual bit, that nothing is beyond Jesus' command. That's why these two scenes are linked together. Okay, now verse 26, they sail to the Gentile region of the Gerasenes. What happens next? Well, when Jesus steps ashore, he's met by a demon-possessed man. Who is he? Well, we don't really know very much about him. We only need what we need to know. We're told for years this man's been chained under guard. He's disturbed. He's violent. He lives naked in the tombs. Well, poor guy. He's a real person. Just imagine it. Life in the tombs. The tombs weren't modern cemeteries with neat rows of gravestones. Tombs were dark, insanitary places with malodorous, gut-wrenching pong of decaying flesh. We should feel his pain. That is where our man lives. That's his home. So verse 28, when he sees Jesus, the man falls at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you do not torture me. Yeah, of course, he's disturbed. In passing, did you notice the, the demons speaking through him recognize Jesus for who he truly is, son of the most high God? Well, how does Jesus react? Jesus doesn't say, come on, fella, you stink, go away, or don't come back until you've showered, or go and borrow a loincloth. No, Jesus is as calm as when he stilled the storm. And he asks him somewhat surprisingly, what is your name? What is your name? I record that little detail because Luke's checked his facts. Yes, he has. But remember that Luke's a theologian and intends to shed light on who Jesus is. He's not just son of the most high God. Could this question tell us more about the questioner, about Jesus, than about the man himself? So what's in the name? What's in the name? Well, all people have names. Animals don't, not usually, unless they're pets or then my brother-in-law's herd of cows, most of which are called Daisy. A name means we're not just generic humans. We are persons. And Jesus asked this man his name because Jesus always treats people as persons. He celebrates that we're valued, known, and loved by God. So think about it for a moment. If Jesus truly values a naked, dirty, dangerous nobody who lives in the sinking tombs, it means he can and does truly love and value you and me, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, how ashamed we are, how low we've fallen, you and I have a name and Jesus values and loves us as persons. What is your name? That's one reason Luke the theologian seems, sees significance in Jesus' question. But the other reason behind the question is even more remarkable if that were possible comes three chapters later in Luke 11. Jesus says something so extraordinary, it spotlights what happens to our demon-possessed man. It's Luke 11, verse 20. Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what's really happening in this region of the Gerasenes this day? I'll tell you what's not going on. What's not going on is Jesus is not patching the man up. He's not about to cure his spots, fix his pancreas, make him smell good, or miraculously clothe him in an Armani suit. 
none of those. The clue is in the question. What is your name? What is your name? The clue, Jesus is going to restore this man's personhood. He's going to restore this man's personhood. He's going to mend his identity. That is what happens in the kingdom of God. And it is massively relevant for us today. Do you know why? Do you? Well, have you observed in Britain today, and in fact in the whole Western world and beyond, perhaps more than at any other time, we are so troubled by issues of identity. I have a name, but who am I? Who am I really? I may have thousands of Facebook friends, but self-acceptance can be so difficult. If only they really knew my looks, my voice, where I came from, my uncertainties, my relationships, my past, my parents, made fun of at, of, at school, treated unjustly, vilified on social media, disappointments, losses, and a thousand other possibilities that have caused me to shrivel, to shrivel up inside. Most of us are deeply dissatisfied more than we realized with who we are. I know because as a psychotherapist every week, I meet people who feel like this. I sometimes feel it myself. Of course, these days, if we don't like what we see, we have options, options, don't we? We can change our identity from the outside in. We can beautify ourselves on Instagram, smooth our wrinkles on Zoom, adopt an avatar in the metaverse, or if we're especially brave, have painful, painful things done with our anatomy. If you don't like yourself, change yourself. But actually, hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ restores identity. He forgives your sin, knows your name, and slowly but surely does change us, but from the inside out. You know, Jesus not only loves us as persons, he understands our struggles better than anyone. Hear that, because you know how much unhappiness there is around, maybe in you, maybe in me, maybe everywhere. But like to our man from the tombs, the lover of our soul says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the good news of the kingdom of God, that when we do, Jesus Christ restores identity. Back to the text. What is your name? The, the response may surprise us. Legion, the man replies. Legion. No, his name is not Mr. Legion, or Legion Smith, or Legion Parry Jones. Legion means many, 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 many. This man's inner life is riddled with demons. His identity is smashed into a thousand pieces like a schizophrenic disintegration. And so, verse 32, enter the pigs. Enter the pigs. Now, I was born, brought up, some of you know this, I was brought up in a Jewish home. I can tell you there were no bacon and eggs for breakfast, no pork sausages for lunch, never a pork chop for supper. Such a deprived childhood. It wasn't actually deprived, it was kosher. And then as now, as you know, for Jews, our pork iron friends are off the menu. So if you were surprised when the pigs turned up, remember this is Gentile territory, not Jewish, it's Gentiles. For Gerasenes, pigs were okay. But is what happens next okay? Before we accuse Jesus of pig prejudice, cruelty to animals, and topple his statue, check the facts. He's neither. It's the demons. They are the ones who beg and plead with Jesus rather than face the abyss, let us go into the pigs. The abyss, by the way, the abyss is the, uh, the bottomless pit of revelation where Satan and his other fallen angels are imprisoned until their final punishment. And so when the demons come out of the man, if that wasn't drama enough, they enter 
the pigs, presumably to their surprise and to everyone watching, including the pig farmers. The herd rushes down the steep bank into the lake and are drowned. Well, as we saw visually, it's very dramatic. The pig affair, these days we probably call it pig gate. Arguably, it's the most dramatic event in Jesus' entire ministry, visually speaking. And this I witnessed. One thing that Luke is keen to teach us is there's always more to evil than meets the eye. Always more to evil than meets the eye. So the historical facts are also a theological picture of what in reality does happen to the demons. The pigs drown, they drown. Jesus does send them into the abyss. Now we can't leave it quiet there because this is also future focused, future focused. The good news of the kingdom is a foretaste of a future world where evil will have no place to hide. If by the finger of God, I cast out demons, know the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in verse 35, the crowds turn up as they do and straight into action go Luke's eyewitnesses. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon possessed man had been cured. And that's how we get our Luke research precision account. As he prepares to leave, verse 39, Jesus says to the man, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Notice the detail, how much God has done for you. My lovely Jewish and Muslim friends often tell me, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, chums, he does here. You know, we never found out the man's true name, did we? The point is Jesus revealed his true name to him. Go home and tell them how much God has done for you, which is what he does. His identity restored, remade by who? By Jesus, the finger of God, and that's it. Bring down the curtain. So to go back to where we started, did we really draw the short straw? No, I don't think so. It's only at first sight this account is about flying pigs and angry demons. In fact, it's all about Jesus, the amazing Jesus, the amazing Jesus, who he is, and he comes to deal with the darkness. And yes, the darkness is profoundly evil. It was the French poet Charles Baudelaire who once said, the greatest trick of the devil that he ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. In a way, turning demons into slithering green slime and jaw-swallowing giants is all part of the deception, isn't it? To believe is not as wacky as it may seem. If I accept the resurrection of Jesus, which I do, I can maybe reluctantly also accept the counterintuitive truth there is a malevolent supernatural force at work in this world. It's not always clear where evil comes from, but we certainly recognize it when we see it. So we're warned, wherever it comes from and whoever and whatever is behind it, evil is a destroyer. It knows no good thing. We see its destructive power at work in inflated egos, in politics, in wars, in oppression, poverty and hunger. We see it in all kinds of nastiness, greed and exploitation and injustice. Evil, evil is everywhere. Luke teaches us there's always more to evil than meets the eye. Before I tumble you into a state of depression about this, the darkness of this world in whatever form will never be any match for the kingdom of God. Evil itself will be destroyed. That's Luke's message. It will end just as surely as the demons ended in the abyss. Now we know this finally, of course, because of the cross. It always goes back to the cross, each time, every time, because on the cross, that's where Jesus paid the price of sin 
and demolished the strongholds of Satan. I guess we very much need to hear this good news, how very much we need to hear it, to take it in, to digest it, and let it become an essential part of our worldview, the way we see things, and to inspire us, especially when the darkness draws close, which it surely will do. Put simply, people need to hear about Jesus, the real Jesus. That's your friends, my friends, and our loved ones too. They all need to hear about the one who knows us by name, restores our deep down identity, and will deal with the darkness. So what should we do in response? What should we do? It's not rocket science. We should do exactly what Jesus tells us and told our man to do. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. Let's be quiet together. I suggest we have some moments of quiet and silence and to think and pray. Anything that has challenged us, anything that has crossed our minds, listening to God's word and the way we want to speak back to him about it. Let's pray.